The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. If you live in an area that has been particularly exposed to trade, then your attitudes to work, uh, towards the environment, the protection of the environment and climate change uh, change. And in particular, they decrease. They, you're less prone to believe climate change is happening, less worried about that. And at the same time, voting behavior shifts away from green parties or parties with a green agenda. This was Valentina Bosetti, Professor of Climate Change Economics at the Bocconi University in Milan, speaking about the findings of a research paper she and a group of academics recently published on what determines support for green policies. Welcome to The Exchange. I am Lisa Yucca, European Business Editor at Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you this week from Milan to discuss how the economy matters in shaping voters' attitudes towards climate change in a year that sees both the US presidential elections and the EU Parliament vote. As Valentina Bosetti will tell us, globalization has led to economic inequalities in certain areas and resentment towards the green transition. To address that, governments should consider using policy instruments like the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism to redirect possibly billions of euros of additional resources to the most vulnerable. To learn more, listen on. So, Valentina, welcome to The Exchange. Um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure uh, to have you here on the program today. Uh, we're both in Milan, Italy, and, uh, you know, I'm taking the opportunity to discuss with you um, attitudes towards environmental policies on the back of a really interesting research paper that you and other academics have published not so long ago. Um, and I, I'm really glad you're here because I think it's quite topical right now. We are seeing, for instance, as we speak, um, massive protests in several European countries. I mean, farmers in France, Belgium, in other places, they're up in arms asking governments to review some certain environmental rules because they feel, you know, they are unfairly burdened, you know, by, by these rules. And this is quite interesting because obviously Europe, where we are, has always prided itself for being at the forefront of these green policies. And so I, I really thought that it would be nice to talk to you because indeed, you know, your research has kind of looked a little bit of how, you know, this attitude uh, towards, you know, climate change rules or environmental issues may change. And, you know, I, I was just wondering whether you could share with us, you know, some of the main takeaways from your research. Sure, it is a pleasure to be here. So let me start by saying that in our research, we look at people, I mean, voters and uh, the citizens. We don't look at uh, producers or in the case you mentioned farmers, but I'd be happy to talk about that maybe later. So in this study, we uh, cover both European countries and US countries. And we ask the question whether being exposed to trade So living in an area that is particularly exposed, being exposed to trade uh, affects the attitudes towards climate change, the perception of the how severe the problem is, and then the voting behavior and whether people vote more or less for parties that have some 
you know, green attitudes or claim they will uh, pass green policies. And what we find is that uh, the answer is that if you've been, if you live in an area that has been particularly exposed to trade, then your attitudes to work, uh, towards the environment, the protection of the environment and climate change, uh, change. And in particular, they decrease. They, you're less prone to believe climate change is happening, less worried about that. And at the same time, voting behavior shifts away from green parties or parties with a green agenda. And Basically, the, we cannot, I mean, this is a macro study, so we cannot really, we didn't interview people. We don't really have information about the channels uh, of this process. So, but then in the paper, we conjecture some of the channels that could be at the basis of this process, uh, drawing from other literature. So, for instance, I mean, when you talk about the challenge, the channels, so the channels that somehow are, impacting or shaping, let's say, the behavior and the, the voting patterns. I mean, can you make maybe mention, you know, a few of these channels and what are the most relevant in your view? Yes, yeah, so we start from a vast literature that I've shown that albeit uh, trade has obviously brought overall, uh, you know, more uh, growth and more GDP and consumers uh, uh, have faced lower prices and etc. People who have you know, been living and working in sectors that were particularly exposed to trade in areas where imports have been growing massively uh, have been, you know, uh, have been losing jobs or have been living in an area where uh, GDP was uh, growing less. So this inequality. Uh, has been uh, shown to lead to polarization, voting behavior, uh, populism voting. Uh, and basically what we find is that this is also reflected in the way people perceive environmental issues and vote in, with respect to environmental problems. And we think it basically, basically the idea is that obviously uh, when you worry about uh, survive, surviving, when you worry about employment, you worry less about the environment. This is, you know, sort of natural. Okay. I, I understand. So, so, they, they, but it's, so the impact is like the economic impact that these people feel. So the impact from globalization, let's say, because this is what is allowing us, you know, to buy stuff which is produced from the other side of, uh, on the other side of the world at uh, cheaper prices. So the impact from globalization, which may lead or has led in, in some cases to job losses, is at the same time changing the attitudes towards green policies, even though it's not necessary that these green policies have created globalization, right? I mean, do, do you have a more insight maybe on, on why is there a, such a link? Yes, I mean, there is even a, a very interesting literature in psychology that shows that if you, you know, we have a finite pool of worry, and if we worry a lot for various of you know, economic uh, employment-related uh, problems, then we tend to worry less and focus less, uh, focus less on environmental problems, even though, uh, uh, even though, and this, I think, you know, I'll go back to the farming example, climate change is a huge, has huge impacts on agri the agricultural sector. This is the sector that is going to be impacted the most in several areas in Europe. But you, you you don't worry about that 
mostly because you know you have a perception that it's going to come later or in any case that's less relevant than the main source of stress which is the economic uh, problem so that's that's that would be the psychological the psychological channel then there's also a, a different story that is you uh, you know this there's been documented that there is this shift towards some parties and these parties, they, uh, you know, they, they typically are not in favor of uh, climate change or the support for environmental policies. And so the fact that you vote for this party, then you buy the whole package and you start not to support environmental policies just because that's what, you know. In, because in you're drawing political... votes, so you're drawing votes for that sort of constituency and then you're kind of trying to respond to their concerns. I mean, is that correct? So it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy somehow? Or? It, it's, you know, some, some right-wing parties have been traditionally against uh, climate change, even though they don't see that there might be a right-wing, uh, uh, you know, space for environmentalism, uh, environmentalism. But the main thing here is that you start to vote for a right-wing party and the leaders tells you there's no climate change, then basically you follow that because everything is now politicized, everything is polarized. And so there is not little, there's, uh, reduce space for your own opinion on specific factors and so you know, by buying this uh, polar you know entering one of the two poles then you buy the whole package including the position towards environmental issues even though maybe before you were had concerns about uh, you know climate change or the environment so th this year in Europe and in the U United States, we're going to have big elections. We're going to have the European Parliament election and we're going to have obviously the US elections. I mean, the research you've carried out um, covers uh, a range of countries, I mean, including the United States, some European countries. I was wondering whether you have noticed differences or you want to sort of mention particular sectors, you know, within some of these countries that uh, were particularly receptive, if you want, um, to these concerns? We, you know, we what we find is basically there is a very similar response. So areas that were particularly uh, open to trade, particularly affected by trade, because maybe, uh, you know, the, 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 the main firms or the main employment in that area was uh, within sectors that uh, you know had a lot of competition from uh, abroad firms and so a lot of import were displacing them then in those areas within the US and within Europe it's very similar we see this decrease, decrease in con the concern for climate change and uh, change in voting behavior or an effect in voting behavior away from green parties so I, I, I think this is very similar. This is very, that's why we looked into psychological uh, roots of the problem, because this is really similar across uh, uh, all countries. So if we look at uh, Europe, I mean, apart from the farmers, I mean, one big debate, which, which is still ongoing, even though the Europe has taken a big decision. I mean, is the debate surrounding the car industry. I mean, fears that the car industry and the supply chain could be hollowed out, Chinese rivals would eat us because obviously Europe has decided it wants to shift to electrification. And, and again, if I think about that industry, parts of Germany, parts of northern Italy, 
some you know places in Eastern Europe are very dependent on that um, industry. So is that, for instance, area? I mean, are those areas, for instance, where you uh, noticed? you know, a, an increase of kind of skepticism towards uh, climate change? Or can you uh, mention some others that uh, so, uh, emerge from your research? So certainly these areas would be, uh, you know, uh, have been affected by imports, so would be at the forefront of these results. Uh, I would like to point out that if you look at the implication unemployment of the so-called energy transition, there are a few sectors where basically the overall implication in the studies we've seen around, the overall implication of the energy transition would be an increase in employment. This is particularly true for the power sector. Now, there are a few sectors where this is not the case, and I want really to mention um, the sector of the automotive sector, but because that's the one specific sector where the transition towards electric cars would probably imply uh, lower employment for various reasons related to the fact that uh, uh, electric cars require less uh, because they, they, you know, they're, they're done differently. They, they require less man- maintenance uh, and then they also require less people to build the car. Uh, so that's big issue, and uh, I think that's together with other issues, uh, possibly that of uh, you know the agriculture, are issues that have really you know they require a lot of uh, planning. You have to think ahead what would be uh, the change in employment and what that uh, requires in terms of uh, making policy to make that happen without. Uh, creating even more inequality. Um, so, I, uh, yes, I think I think the transport sector, the automotive, the, the production of electric cars is going to be an issue. Uh, for that, you have to prepare. The only problem is that you cannot, uh, the only thing you should not be doing is ignore the problem because we're going to shift towards an electric uh, transportation system and ignoring the problem, dragging your feet, not getting prepared. That's the only thing you shouldn't be doing. So just uh, before we we continue on this discussion, I mean, since you are an expert when it comes to electrification, I mean, not only because you're a researcher, but you've also been the chair of Terna, who's the electric grid firm in Italy. I was just wondering whether some of these requests that we've heard from industry, from politicians to maybe slow down the electrification for fears of what exactly you mentioned, this kind of uh, job losses, inability maybe for some to reconvert, you know, from one segment to another. I mean, are any of those fears warranted? Are we going too fast? I mean, is Europe going too fast? You cannot really change the infrastructure and the grid too fast. It's a very slowly process. So the, what we need to do is to prepare the process. Uh, um, I, I think it, it cannot, it won't be too fast. Um, and, and it cannot be too fast simply because you have, for example, let's let's think of Italy. We're going to have to have massive production of renewable electricity in the south of Italy, and we're going to have to find ways to bring this electricity where, you know, electricity is needed. Most of the needs in electricity in Italy are in the north of Italy. So this massive change in infrastructure will require the next 10 to 15 years, which will 
you know, give plenty of time for a producer to adjust. The problem is that um, the problem we have at the moment is really how slow the process of permitting um, both in the side of production for renewable projects and to build this new infrastructure to uh, to bring electricity around Italy uh, is taking. And, and this is very similar to the rest of Europe. We, we're going to see huge investment. US as well, huge investment in um, in the grid, huge investment in able to bring electricity across the sea. Uh, and at some point, we're going to see bottlenecks uh, that are related to the supply chain. But all these uh, can be done if we think in 10 and 20 years time frames. Uh, at that that's the thing that we need and in that time frame you can also organize for whatever it needs to be organized for the employment part absolutely so obviously one of the issues that you've mentioned in the research is the problem of inequality which is kind of stemming from uh, globalization from certain areas to exposed uh, uh, to too much trade and maybe you know in in the automotive industry also you know to the fact that some people will lose their job and won't be able to be retrained so i mean is is inequality or a feeling that inequality is growing one of the main reasons for this kind of negative attitudes towards um, climate change policies and what can be done in practice to address that so I think there's a, the plan has to have two main points. Point number one, environmental policies have to be designed with justice in mind. And I think this Europe, uh, at least in Europe, we've understood that very well. In the just transition, it's not just a word. It's, it's a, it has its own plan. It has uh, designing the plan ways to get revenues, money, to redistribute funds to exactly those who are going to lose the most. So I think this is very clear to European policymaking and it needs to be acted, but uh, it is very clear. The second problem, the second main response is that of education. I'm saying that because I'll give you the example of what's happening now in Europe. The main source of air pollution that's causing death in Europe is agriculture. Okay, so PM 2.5 that is generated by agricultural sources, uh, one of the main causes, for example, here in, uh, in um, the area where, where I live, in the area of Milan, is uh, uh, manure spreading that generates ammonia that then uh, reacts in, uh, in, um, in the air and becomes particular, fine particular matter. Now, this process is so complex uh, that uh, you know, it requires some time to be explained. And most people do not realize that that's the main cause or one of the main sources of the pollution that they live and hate in cities. So it's not about climate change. It's not about future generation. And it's not about somewhere else. It's about what is affecting the lungs of our children here and now. So you would say, if you knew that, then you would realize that that externality that, that is generated by farmers needs to be addressed because it really affects you and me and everybody around us. If you understand that, if there is enough education so that we understand and agree on that, then 
we can think of way of redistributing to the farmers because the gain from reducing diesel pollution are so big for so many people that of course we can all be better off by supplying or subsidizing farmers for changing their ways of production and all of us all of the citizens and the farmers breathing a better air so the problem is that it's so complicated that it's very hard to explain that is very you know even politicians don't get it um, and so they don't explain it to people and so it all gets it all gets then very very uh, emotional and not based on science Absolutely. But, you know, to try and help the farming sector uh, address the issue that you just described, uh, you mentioned subsidies. And we live in a situation where many governments are already heavily indebted or they have, like we've seen in Germany, um, self-imposed breaks on how much debt they want to take on. And, you know, these processes, this transition is very costly. So is there a way... Um, in Europe to somehow find revenue sources that can help us fund the just transition. I'll say one more thing. I mean, in the US, uh, the Biden administration has decided to give massive tax breaks, but obviously that means the state, you know, will get less tax revenue. So I just wonder whether we can use revenue sources really, rather than just new government debt to fund the just transition. So, it so happened that we have the best system in place already, which is called the European Emission Trading Scheme, that is a market for emissions that so far um, covers you know, heavy polluting industries, the power sector, and some other and some others and larger plants, of course. And the idea is that basically emissions from this plant um, uh, needs to be you know, needs to be covered or, or matched by permits, and these permits have a price, and there is a market for uh, these permits. Now, um, some sectors uh, receive these permits freely every year, and the argument for that is that otherwise they would be competing in a, in a, in a global world against uh, players in other countries that are not paying for their uh, carbon emissions. So uh, one idea, one, one policy that is uh, just uh, you know, taking place now in Europe uh, is uh, the policy of the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So why is this related? The idea is to put a tariff on imports from countries that are not uh, imposing any carbon price on their firms producing a good. And so when that good is important in, in Europe, um, a tariff has to be surrendered that is equal to the price that firms producing the same good in Europe are paying. Now, it, it won't be so much the, the, the tariff won't really generate that many, that much revenues, but the revenues will come from the fact that if firms now in Europe recognize that uh, this problem of competition is not there anymore, they will accept to not get the their permits for free, but they will uh, buy uh, through an auction the permits. That is going to generate revenues. The revenues from the auction permits to cover emissions within the UETS. Now, those revenues are going to be able to fund 
at least in part, some of the policies uh, that uh, are meant to um, protect the most vulnerable to these environmental policies, possibly including farmers for new, you know, to cover to cover for new technologies that reduce their emissions. So, Donna, this is uh, this is quite interesting. Just to help our listeners to better understand the mechanism, could you give us um, a sense of the scale of the revenue that can be um, generated from these uh, uh, emission schemes, uh, and also from uh, the, in the future when the CBAM is introduced? So today, sixty percent of the permits are auctioned. Now, the revenues depends on the price of each individual permit. For example, in 2022, roughly 40 billions were the revenues under the UTS. Now, if the remaining 40% of allowances were to be auctioned and not given for free, now the revenues would be substantial. Of course, that would depend on the future price of uh, of um, the permits it is int- interesting if you look at time history of the price of emission on, on this market they were you know in the in the around 20 euros until 2021 and then the price has started to take off and now we are in the order of 80 to 90s to 90 euros why is that because it's clear that uh, the cap, the total number of permits, which is represent how stringent European policy regulation on uh, carbon emission is going to be, is decreasing every year. And obviously, when something becomes scarcer, the price increases. Now, on the other hand, if you improve the technologies to uh, you know, and you, you don't need those permits anymore. You dec- decrease the demand for those permits, so that will bring the price down. So the price is going to depend on these factors, how many permits are in the system and how many firms will demand. And uh, so we, we cannot be sure on what the price is going to be. Very likely it's going to increase a, l- a little more, but not go- it won't go to the roof. So, um, I mean, you, you're sort of advocating for the revenue to be used to to help, let's say, those who have been impacted negatively by globalization. Um, who, who should be doing that? I mean, are, are the, is the money distributed among member states in Europe? I mean, who is responsible for making use of the money? At the moment, the revenues are redistributed to countries, which then do with them, you know, some, a part of those should be earmarked for improving environmental green technologies, but most countries basically put them back into the, U and, and pour them into the huge deficits they have. So obviously uh, there will be a need for greater uh, and clearer regulation how the money should be used. Now, I should mention something. There is a, a big concern of developing countries, uh, especially those who are exporting some of the goods that are going to be at the beginning part of this uh, CBAM idea, this carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, they have the concern that this is going to affect them disproportionately in a way that is not fair. 
in the sense that they, they are not pricing carbon yet because they are not yet in their level of development, they still to emit, that's their claim. So a little part of these funds could be earmarked to help, especially those developing nations that are most, most affected by um, in their exports to Europe to catch up with their technologies. So part of this money uh, could probably be earmarked for that. Absolutely. No, that's that's quite interesting. Um, so, Valentina, I mean, I, I must thank you because you've given us an interesting overview um, and, you know, of your research. And uh, I wanted to maybe end the conversation with a, a further question. So, if you look ahead at the year that this just started, I mean, do you feel on the basis of the research you conduct, but also of what you see that uh, there will be more of a sort of a backsliding in, in public opinions with regards to climate change and environmental policies, uh, or is this more of a perception than actual reality? I think this is the story we tell us. And as, as, uh, as long as the story we tell us kind of make things happen, then it's probably going to happen. But uh, I think uh, sometimes we could, we could pause and ask ourselves whether we can tell different stories, whether we can imagine a world where even the right wing sees the benefits of uh, nationally produced electricity with uh, clean technologies, uh, or a world where we imagine you know, citizens kind of uh, seeing and understanding some of these very uh, present and very local environmental problems as something that really affects the poorest the most. So what is absurd of all this situation is that not only those who have been affected the most by globalization will, you know, will obviously they have lost their job and they and they reacted by caring less about the environment, but those are also the most vulnerable to climate change itself. So. So understanding these uh, and, and understanding stories that are not linear at times is something uh, and telling stories that are not linear at times is harder. Well, I hope this conversation we just had today helps our readers maybe get a different view on um, the current situation and climate apologies and, and how to deal uh, with that. Thank you very much, Valentina, for joining us on the exchange and uh, we hope to continue the conversation on this topic with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tuslet in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views on breakingviews.com and on the X social media site where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. 
For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. 